Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering about the last time you felt completely secure and unthreatened, where you uh, sensed that you were entirely safe and you could really let your guard down. I think that those times in life are very fleeting and that we don't uh, often discover them where we would most wish to. I think so much of my life is uh, seeking some sphere that is completely protected and safe and uh, and yet those safe spaces are thwarted time after time uh, by some sort of pain. I think a lot of people wish to find a safe place with their parents. I was reading uh, recently about a Samuel Johnson, that 18th century author who uh, was commenting early in his literary career about his most significant day. He wrote about it with great flourish in which he fished with his father. As he was a child and he uh, caught fish with his father. But then after his father died, uh, he, he discovered his father's journals. And his father uh, detailed uh, lots of things in those journals, including that very day in which they went fishing together. And he had a very brief entry for that day, and it read, went fishing with Sam, what a waste of a day. You don't want to read that if you're, you know, you know, let's just say it kind of toppled the idol of, of, you know, good parents, right? Yeah. Um, but that was his safe space and it was thwarted. For some people it has to do with a cushion of wealth, a mattress of money, you know, to have enough or you'll never struggle. Uh, I was reminded of uh, Christina Onassis, the uh, Greek-American billionaireess who uh, was divorced four times and uh, died actually very tragically of a drug overdose. But before she died, a few weeks before she died, uh, she uh, said this in an interview with uh, some uh, tabloid, it is quite true that money cannot buy happiness and my life is the sad proof of that fact. Um, and for some of you, it had to do with being a mother. I mean, today is Mother's Day. You know, it's not part of the liturgical calendar, but I'm going to mention it. Like, yeah, it's Mother's Day, right? And, and you thought that being a mom was the key to your inner solace, right? That you were going to be the Zen mother, the one that was going to be the, the instantiation of patience and decency. And, uh, and it didn't work out that way, you know, you, you, because sometimes you become a stressed out maniac. Um, and, and, and in fact, I had somebody from Grace say, uh, and this was a direct quote, I find that in my mothering, I'm more like the evil stepmother than Snow White, <laughs> which I thought was quite good. Um, or maybe it's the fact that you're a senior and you're graduating and you're leaving Grove City College. And maybe, just maybe, this has been home for you because your own home, you know, where you're really from, was a treacherous and difficult place, but you found bonds of affection here that have kept you sane and actually given you a place of safety, and now you're about to leave it. And that's messing with you deeper than you admit. And that, uh, that leaving is, uh, is grievous to you. But I think all of us wish that we could find some sort of safe place, some sort of a sphere in which we can let our guard down. And what's beautiful in John's gospel, in the 10th chapter of that gospel, is that we are offered a safe place. It's really the only one 
the only place that is unthwartedly safe, which is in the, uh, the hands of the good shepherd. And I want to speak about John chapter 10. This good shepherd chapter uh, is, is quite lengthy. We're only reading the tail end of it. Um, in the earlier portion, we read a lot about Jesus' sacrificial activism, that he's willing to lay down his life for these mistreated sheep. And in our passage, we hear a lot about the security that is found in the hands of the good shepherd. But because the passage is so complicated and because I don't have three hours with you, I'm only going to be paying attention to verse 29. So I invite you to take up your bulletins, please, and underline if you have a a pen or a pencil or a highlighter uh, or or some sort of etching tool. Um, Please underline verse 29 and circle two words. Circle the word given and the word hand, given in hand. Because I want to speak this evening about two things related to that passage, the gift of the good shepherd and the grasp of the good shepherd. Uh, But first, the gift of the good shepherd. And this is verse 29. Let me read it to you. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now I want you to notice who is the giver and who is the receiver of this gift. It is not so much a gift from the good shepherd. It is a gift given to the good shepherd. The father is displayed almost as Father Christmas who gives these amazing gifts to his uh his beloved child. Uh, And giving from father to son is a massive repeated theme in John's gospel. It's mentioned 12 different times that the father gives the son particular things, unique things, massive, substantial gifts. I'm only going to read four of them to you, but just so you hear, hear this kind of language in the rest of John's gospel. This is John 3, 35. The father has given all things into the son's hand. John 5:22 The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Then John 6:37 All that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6 Uh, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that the father has given to me. And so the father gives the son a lot of things, namely all things, the power of resurrection and all those who come to him in faith. They are all gifts from the father to the son. And today's text repeats that same theme about giving from father to son. My father has given them to me. Now, the Reformed churches, uh, and some of you come from that background, and Anglicanism shares a lot with that background, uh, the Reformed churches talk a lot about what they call the covenant of redemption. And maybe some of you know that language, the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is this idea that father and son, who are in perfect alignment and agreement, by the way, that's true of you and no one, right? Because right? Every relative you have and every friend you have, the more time you spend with them, you'll discover there are areas that you are not in sync, right? The difference between you and God is multifaceted, but one of those differences, <laughs> right? That was, I'm so glad you laughed. The, the congregation this morning did not, and they didn't, they weren't as with it, but you are because you're, you're more credible. Um, I didn't say that. I'll edit that out. But, um, 
the, the difference between you and God is multifaceted, but, the, but what, what God has in God's own intrinsic nature is agreement within God's own self non-competition within God's own self. And so father and son have this agreement from eternity past that the father will bestow upon the son this redemptive gift, this redemptive gift. Uh, And uh, this agreement occurs very, very early on, and we see evidences of it right from the near beginning in Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 3, that very dark chapter in which human beings become rather satanic and we collapse uh, under the weight of sin and temptation, um, God enters the scene and he prophesies against Satan. You may remember this. He prophesies against the snake, and he says to the snake... These words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he, singular, shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Why is that remarkable? Be, remarkable because as soon as the fall occurs, the gospel is pronounced. As soon as people collapse into nature's night, the light shines and says this will not always be the story. There will be a singular descendant that comes to uh, smash the skull of the serpent and to defeat evil forever, thereby liberating people that have been destroyed uh, by that same nature's night. Uh, That descendant will reclaim the lost. You've heard it from this pulpit multiple times, uh, but the cross was not God's plan B. It was part of the covenant of redemption. It was plan A from eternity past. And the result of this plan, that God would send his only son into the world to redeem that world, uh, um, would, would, would usher forth or usher into history this great gift for the son. What is the gift that the father gives the son? Our text tells us, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from the father's hand. Uh, the them there is uh, a reference uh, to the flock, because this is the Good Shepherd chapter. He's talking about the flock of God, sheep. That is, you're being likened to sheep. I think that that's funny. Here's why. The gift from the father to the son seems rather unremarkable. You may have heard that there is a man named Elon who just purchased a very important um, uh, sociopathic media for a like outlet um, called Twitter. And it just sold for $44 billion, right? That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. But the father does not bestow upon the son a, a fortune of $44 billion. He does not give him all of music or art. He does not, in this passage, uh, give him political power or a constitution or a nation. He doesn't even, in this passage, give him all authority over heaven and earth. That comes, but it's not in this passage. Here's the gift in this passage. You, me, us. And we're likened to sheep, by the way. It's not flattering. Um, but the, the gift of from father to son seems unremarkable. Like, Merry Christmas. Here is your rabble of a very confused, often infighting, quizzical, sometimes biting, sometimes dim sheep. But nevertheless, we are the gift from the father to the son, and then from the son back to the father, that we are the gift. Now, in this church, we rightly spend time talking about the giftness of the gospel. That is what the son gives us freely by his blood. 
But this is what is given back to God, that you are the gift of heaven. It's you. It's not a concept. It's not a sonnet. It's not a painting. It's you. It's me. It's us. And I think it's really important that we hear the word of the Lord regarding our own giftness today, our irreducible identity as a gift to God. And that's, you know, I know that can sound like preacher white noise. It just goes in one ear and out the other because it, it doesn't ring true. I mean, do you really think of yourself like that? I mean, maybe some of you do. I would take your class if you do think about yourself that way. Like, I want to learn. I want to know how you do that. But I, I think that most of us have other voices in our heads. You know, I went away uh, with Monique to a retreat that was done for um, many pastors were there and other people in Christian ministry. And it was very helpful. It was a retreat to help us think about our own personal histories and the good and the bad and the ugly within those personal histories. And we had an exercise in which people uh, would talk about um, the lies that they have believed about themselves and the lies that they speak about themselves because the lie has become so ingrained in them that they ended up parroting it about themselves and believing the lie about themselves. And there were lots of words that people used as the primary heading of their life or the title of their life, the title of their being, their essence. And people said all sorts of things. I'm a burden. I'm fearful. I'm weak. I'm ugly. I'm hard to love. I'm hysterical. I'm high maintenance. I'm combative. I'm egotistical, I'm spiteful, I'm critical, I'm capricious, I'm promiscuous, I'm scandalous, and I'm spoiled. And in fact, there was, um, I remember being at another retreat where we did something similar, and we were all to bring a picture of what, we, uh, of what represented us, and the person brought a picture of the uh, rubble of 9-11, the, the demolished buildings. And the leader of the group was very interested in that photograph and says, well, what is that about? And, um, and the woman, and she looked like a very well-established woman, uh, said, well, uh, that's the word I would choose. I am rubble. I'm like the World Trade Center where I used to have a beautiful life. You know, I got married young and I, I, I did all the right things. I married who I thought would be the right person until I found out that he cheated on me numerous times. So I divorced him and then I became worse than he was. And I lived my life as a complete renegade and a prodigal for, you know, 15 years until I became so ruined that I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror anymore. And very slowly, I kind of worked my way back to some sort of semblance of normalcy. But everywhere I go, I, I, can't, um, I can't seem to dislodge myself from the rubble. I just am the rubble. And she would speak about herself constantly that way until the leader of the group said, really, you have to stop. You have to stop thinking of yourself that way. You actually are not a collapsed, beautiful building at 9-11. You're not rubble. What you are is wise. And she said, wise? And he said, yeah, you're wise. She said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, because listen, now you're really street smart. You're not stupid. You've learned a lot through the years, and you've recalibrated to such a degree that you've become a veritable fountainhead of wisdom for all sorts of other people who are very close to making the same mistakes that you did, but you help to steer them away from it because they see in your own bitter experiences where these things can lead and how they can devastate you, and you yourself aren't going to go back there. So you're actually a remarkable person, a wise person, and God is a great opportunist, and he wastes nothing and will utilize everything, even even your traumas 
to bring some sort of redemption. And, you know, after that moment, she was able to raise her head a little higher because she realized her giftness. And I'm wondering if you have ever had anybody in your life point out your giftness, not your burden, not how difficult you are, not how capricious you can be, but actually what a gift you are. I hope you have somebody speaking into your life that way. And if you don't, Jesus is. This is his definition of your person. You are a gift that was given to him in the covenant of redemption. And so this passage is about your giftness to the Son from the Father. So it's about the gift, but it's also about the grasp, because the text says in verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's talk about the tough grasp of God for just a few minutes. I want to point out a few things about it. First, we are grasped by greatness. Why do I say that? Because the text says, the Father who is greater than all. You know, there are a lot of great steering forces in the world that, ha- that are bearing down on you constantly, whether you feel them or not, whether you acknowledge them or not. It's just true, right? Forces of biology, gravity, intelligence, politics, economics, mental illness, past abuse, uh, personal hang-ups, you know, the needs of your children, the needs of your aging parents, all of those things are pressures on you that form and fashion you in a variety of ways. And they're all incredibly strong, far stronger than we think. And yet, this passage is saying there is something stronger still, something that is beautifully baser than all of those things, a ground of being that is more powerful than all of them combined. And that ground of being is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one that grasps us, and his hands are stronger than all other hands because his his hands are, are the ones that constructed the universe with all its current dynamics. And so those are the hands in which you are held, the Father who is greater than all. Also notice that we are grasped by Two sets of hands, two sets of hands. Let's rewind in our passage, go back to verse 28, which I'm not a mathematician, but I hear is before 29. And in verse 28, the text says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's Jesus speaking about himself in verse 28. So he's saying, me as the good shepherd, as the son of God, you're in my hands. And then in verse 29, our verse, it says that you're in the Father's hands. We're clutched by two different sets of hands. Now, this is why later Jesus talks about the Father and I being one, right? They are one in ontology, in a sense, but they're also one in purpose. And so we are grasped by the Creator, the one who formed your DNA, and grasped by the Redeemer, the one who cleanses your DNA. Um, But we are grasped by Father and Son. And most important and certainly most pronounced in our passage, the grasp of God, of father and son is secure, hyper secure. In fact, this is verse 28. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And verse 29, no one is able to snatch them from the father's hand. Now, again, not a mathematician, but no one is a pretty inclusive term. Um, as As I often joke from this pulpit, the Greek for no one means no one. No one. Okay, good. Um, it, it suggests impossibility, that we actually are secure somewhere, and we happen to be secure in the most important place, in the one who is ultimacy. He has us. We are grasped, safe and secure from all alarms. 
Friends, redemption in the New Testament is not flimsy or weak. This is why Paul in Romans 8 echoes the sentiments of St. John in chapter 10. This is what he says and writes in Romans 8. If God is for us, then who can be against us? His thought is God is the highest power. Nobody's going to challenge him. In the next verse, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the hands that made the world are the hands that hold on to you, and you will not be lost. You will not be lost. The grasp is tight, permanent, secure, and he will not lose any who have been given to him. So uh, that's the two points tonight, the gift and the grasp, that you are the gift, and the grasp is the grasp of God upon your very life. Now, I want to consider today the consequences of this amazing gift and the grasp of the good shepherd. So let me offer these two parting words about the salvation of the sheep. The salvation of the sheep is secure and the salvation of the sheep is personal. The security of, uh, of the sheep is um, a very hot topic in Christian theology. You may know this. And so I'm, I'm tiptoeing into like dangerous territory. Christians have historically disagreed about whether or not our rescued state before God is safe. Some people think it can be lost, even easily lost. Now, from a human perspective, that is how we see and judge things with our eyes and with our emotions, many of us have personally experienced the tides of faith within our own souls, where it seems to flow in and sometimes flow away, flow out. And we also know people, perhaps several people, who have claimed to once have a living faith, but do so no longer. Let me say this. The security of salvation is a complex subject, even in the New Testament, some New Testament figures are displayed as walking away from the faith. Uh, some persons are said to have shipwrecked their faith, etc. Uh, and from a human perspective, it's very obvious that people are in transition, flowing in and flowing out. This has always been the case. But it has to be pointed out that the human perspective of where people are in relation to God or where we ourselves are in relation to God, those perspectives are always partial and more limited than we realize. To quote Elizabeth I, we do not have windows into men's souls. Um, but our text tonight does not give a human perspective on salvation. That is, who is detectably in or detectably out. Who was once detectably in but seems detectably out now. Instead, what does Jesus offer in this particular passage? He offers a heavenly perspective. He offers the perspective of God himself regarding the security of salvation. And this heavenly perspective says that no one can steal us from the hands of God. No power of hell, no scheme of man, no wayward self can ever pluck us from his hand. Um, there is, uh, you know, there's uh, an, an irritation in the fallen human condition that pushes against the radicality of the gospel and of grace. And sometimes we give way to that suspicion that it's got to at least be 3% me. Yes, it can be 97% God, but I have to do my part too. And I'm the, I'm the linchpin that makes this thing work. 
Friends, I just encourage you to forget about that just for a day and maybe trust that God has you. Just trust that Jesus did pay it all. And the word for all in Greek means all. Like really, really, this was all gift to you. It's all from Jesus who secures it for you. And even if you can't go there with me, please let's at least admit that salvation is far more secure than our vocation, our education, our career, our marriage, our race, our politics, and our plans for the future. And it's secure because of God. You know, like we, like Jesus' very first disciples, will have, uh, you know, warp and woof to our faith and our walk. We will at times have resilient trust followed by tormenting doubts. We believe, then we flake out. We rejoice, then we complain. But we moody sheep are not in charge of the salvation project. Salvation is not founded upon the good sheep, but upon the good shepherd. Our faith is often flimsy, our repentance is insecure, and our commitment is weak. But the good shepherd's hands are not flimsy, not insecure, and not weak. And what they intend to hold on to, they hold on to. The Father and the Son have agreed to save you before your parents were zygotes. God knew your name before you knew your name. God loved you before you loved him. And God holds us in his strong hands until we get home. Now, while God's hands do not keep us safe from all pain, illness, and relational breakdowns in this life, they do keep us safe from the forever consequences of sin, death, and judgment. These things will never, ever own you or have you by the throat because you are held permanently in the arms of the good shepherd. And so please let us trust that this thing is durable. It's durable not because we're amazing or because we have to monitor everything every three seconds, but because, in fact, Jesus has accomplished something for us that is secure. And now something else, salvation being personal. Salvation being personal. Here's the personal word for tonight. This is the one I really want you to hear more than anything else. The good shepherd didn't just come for humanity or a country, right? And that's great. The good shepherd came for you. Because what is us? Us is a collection of yous and me. He came for you personally with your life, your story, your ridiculousness, your person, all of it. It's all seen and it's sought and it's held. And he came for you. He laid his life down for you. So, uh, you know, those of you who know me well understand that I'm not a huge fan of country music. I, I, I have tried. Um, but, but on occasion, I hear a song that really gets to me, and I'm going to share one with you. So this song was by a country uh, a star named Jimmy Wayne, which sounds like he would you know, sing country music, right? Jimmy Wayne, right? Um, and it's autobiographical. That's why I love it so much. And it's autobiographical based on his attempt to make sense of the death of his very long absent father who couldn't care less about him. And uh, it's about the singer receiving a revelation of where his true security comes from. Because many of us have spent too long scouring for some false sense of security that evaporates all too easily. And then we have a revelation of where it really comes from, and that's what he experienced. So this is a simple song but it has the tones of deep, deep truth. And I'm going to close by uh, quoting it, and then I'm done. This is the song. He can't remember the times that he thought, does my dad love me? 
probably not. But that didn't stop him from wishing that he did, didn't keep him from wanting or worshiping him. That same boy saw him about once a year, and he recalled the way he felt there standing in tears, stretching his arms out as far as they'd go, and saying the words, Dad, I need you to know that I love you this much, and I'm waiting on you to make up your mind. Do you love me too? Because however long it takes, I'm never giving up. No matter what, I love you this much. And then the song carries on to the funeral scene. The boy grew to hate him for what he had done, for what kind of father would do that to his own son. So he said, damn you, dad, the day that he died. The grown man didn't blink, but the boy inside cried. But there at the funeral, while the choir sang a hymn, he looked up above the preacher and stared at him. And then he said, forgive me, father, when he realized that he hadn't been unloved or alone all his life. Those arms were stretched out as far as they'd go, nailed to a cross for the whole world to know. I love you this much, and however long it takes, I'm never given up, no matter what. I love you this much. Amen. See, at last they took your life.